there. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to pick up, uh, last time I was with you, we finished off that first church, the church at Ephesus, those, uh, those seven letters. And so today I want to start on the uh, second letter that Jesus wrote to the seven churches, uh, the letter to the church at Smyrna. They're starting in verse, uh, let's see, verse 8, 8 through 11. Of chapter 2, yep, chapter 2. Now, when we come to this letter, the, uh, this, this passage, verses 8 through 11, it's one of the central passages in all of Scripture that deals with suffering for the sake of the Lord. And the Lord here speaks to this church about going through suffering, going through uh, tough times, even to the point of death. And He gives His own formula for dealing with suffering, with dealing with sorrow, dealing with pain. And I believe this is especially relevant for us in, in our world today because... As you could tell, it's becoming more and more hostile towards Christianity. Uh, they just don't like Christianity and they want to stomp it out. And so uh, I believe the time is coming. Uh, it's already here, but I think it's only going to get worse where it's going to be difficult to be a Christian in our own country. It's getting to that point. So I want us to look at this passage. Uh, we're not going to finish it today, of course. Um, We'll just work through it as God opens up that door. But I want to take a little time to look at this city to help put this letter in its context. And I think it's very important we understand that. The city of Smyrna was approximately 35 miles just north of uh, the city of Ephesus, the first church we looked at. And it was located on the west coast of Asia Minor. So if you could picture that over there in that area. But what it had, it had this sheltered harbor that faces a bay that brought breezes into the land. And in those hot months, it was a very pleasant place to be. So Smyrna was a place that you would go to to relax at times. Okay. Uh, the population uh, was was large. It depends on who you read. It was estimated anywhere between 100,000 to 250,000. Can't get it any closer than that. But the point is, is that for that day, it was a large city. It wasn't just a small country town. And the point is, is that it was very busy. In fact, it was called the Glory of Asia because it was one of the most beautiful cities at that time. It was a place that people wanted to go to see. It's interesting because on its coins, it would be ascribed first of Asia in beauty and size. Yet there were other cities larger than Smyrna, but they were just a proud city. Uh, and they were in competition against Ephesus uh, at that time. So because of the harbor, there was a lot of commerce, making Smyrna a commercial metropolis. It was very busy. A lot of people in and out, a lot of things going on. And it was second only to Ephesus in exports. And they had a very strong allegiance to Rome. And you'll see why in a moment, why that's so critical. And so the people of Smyrna were quite sensitive to the rivalry with Ephesus for recognition as the most splendid city of Asia Minor. So they were in competition, so to speak. They wanted to outdo Ephesus in its uh, splendor. Now it's interesting that of the seven churches in chapter 2 and chapter 3, only the church in Smyrna and in Philadelphia received no complaint, no condemnation from Jesus Christ. There's only commendation, encouragement, a promise of eternal life to the one who overcomes. And many believe that one of the reasons why Smyrna did not receive any condemnation from Jesus was because it was a suffering church. 
this letter, when you look at verses 8 through 11, is almost uh, uh, exclusively devoted to an account of their, um, uh, their past and present uh, trials. Uh, there's warnings of more to come. They were going through a tough, tough time. A lot of difficulty, a lot of trials, a lot of persecution. And the name Smyrna, if you look at it carefully, it means, the name itself means bitter. It, uh, it's fitting for what the Christians were experiencing because they were going through severe hardship. They were going through severe persecution. And the reason why they were going through this is because of their testimony for Jesus Christ. They were faithful. They did not want to compromise. They did not want to give in to the society, to the culture. And that uh, the name Smyrna comes from the word myrrh. Again, the myrrh is associated in the New Testament with burial and, and, and weeping. In fact, in the city of Smyrna, they would have many groves of trees that produced this plant, this aromatic, uh, aromatic um, gum uh, that they call myrrh, and that you would use at funerals and to bury people. And so Smyrna, the church at Smyrna at this time, was going through the, some very difficult trials. And we have to ask the question, why did the church at Smyrna go through so much uh, uh, suffering? Where did it come from? Well, there's several reasons why, but I want to look at two main reasons why there was major suffering for Christians in Smyrna. First, the, uh, the, the city had supported Rome for over 200 years, and they had earned the right to be the main seat of emperor worship in Asia. And back then in that day, that was huge. That was critical. So they were the main seat of emperor worship. As early as 195 BC, a temple was built for Dea Roma, the goddess of Rome. But the city soon acquired a reputation for loyalty to Rome. They were very patriotic to the empire, to the emperor. And all these Asian cities were competing for the coveted favor of building a temple to honor Tiberius, the emperor. And in AD 26, Smyrna won the privilege of building the Asian temple to Emperor Tiberius. This is huge. It was a city fervent with emperor worship. And in fact, they boasted that they were the leader in all of Asia to worship the emperor. Even over Ephesus, they took great pride in their emperor worship over Ephesus. And this naturally gratified Rome and gained their favor. Now, the civil authorities didn't care so much that Christians worshipped Jesus, so long as they also worshipped the emperor. That was critical to them. And those who refused to worship the emperor back then in Smyrna were liable to be executed. They'd be arrested and eventually executed. Under Emperor Domitian in AD 81 to 96, emperor worship was made compulsory. Every Roman citizen had to worship the emperor at the cost of your life if you didn't. Each year, every citizen had to burn incense to uh, Caesar's altar that they had built, after which he, would be, he or she would be issued a certificate. And you have to carry that certificate with you because if you go out and you don't have the certificate and you're caught, then you're arrested. And if you don't worship, you're executed. That's how serious it became in, uh, in uh, Smyrna. 
And so to be without a certificate was to risk the death penalty. So when the believers in Smyrna refused to pay religious homage by sprinkling incense on the fire that burned before this bust of, of the emperor, it fanned the flames of hostility against the Christians. In fact, the Christians were looked at as um, uh, the enemy. We have to stomp them out if they don't bow the knee to the emperor. That's how serious it got. <clears throat> so it was dangerous to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ in the city of Smyrna at that time. So that's the first main reason for persecution and suffering. It's because of their dedication to Rome. If, they, if the Christians did not bow the knee, there was great suffering. Now there's another second reason, another reason, a second reason why there was such um, persecution, and that was because there was a sizable anti-Christian Jewish population. The Jews hated the Christians, plain and simple. There was great antagonism that existed within the Jewish community towards the church. And so as a result, the Jews would slander the Christians in that culture. And often they would turn Christians in to the Roman authorities when they learned that they did not burn incense and they didn't have a certificate. They'd be the first ones to go and complain, hey, so-and-so here did, uh, does not have a certificate. See, for the problem that they had is that they did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And so when Christians worshipped Jesus as a Messiah, the Jews considered that blasphemy. And they wanted to stomp it out. And so it was, it was difficult. And, it's, and if you recall, you look at the early uh, uh, church, the book of Acts, you see that the first Christians were Jews. Many Jews were repenting. This made the Jews here even angrier that fellow Jews would turn to blasphemy, turn from worshiping Yahweh to a false god named Jesus. We've seen some of the antagonism uh, in the early church, right, against Paul in the book of Acts. For example, in chapter 13 of Acts, verses 50 through 51, Paul was at Antioch, and here's what we read. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. So notice, from the early on, they were persecuted. Then at Iconium, in Acts chapter 14, verse 2 and verse 5, we read, But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. And an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them. That's how much the Jews hated the Christians. Then at Lystra, in chapter 14, verse 19, we read, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having run over the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. That's how much the Jews hated Christians. And then again in chapter 17 at Thessalonica. But the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace. Notice they took wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and set the city in an uproar, and attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And that's just a few examples of how the Jews constantly went against the Christians, those who followed Jesus Christ. And it continued throughout history, even to this present day. We also know that in their opposition to Christianity, they were deeply involved in the martyrdom of a great 
Christian, a great uh, uh, servant of Christ by the name of Polycarp. He was the Bishop of Smyrna. You may have heard of him. On February 23rd, 155 AD, he was killed for his refusal to deny the name of Jesus Christ. He had been the Bishop of Smyrna for many years. He was a disciple of the Apostle John. In fact, he was very close to the Apostle John. John uh, discipled him and uh, encouraged him through his uh, uh, years along with uh, a friend named Papias. He was baptized around 69 AD by the Apostle John, at least that's what we read. But as an elderly saint, as an elderly follower of Jesus Christ, he responded to the proconsul who gave him the choice of cursing Jesus' name and living or confessing his name and dying. And at that point, he, uh, we have these uh, famous words that have often been quoted, which uh, always encourages me. He looked at the proconsul and he said this, 86 years have I served Christ and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And as soon as he said that, the, pro, the proconsul sentenced him to death and he was executed. That was in Smyrna. But what's interesting about his death, what's really interesting about this, is that the Jews were at the forefront in gathering wood for the fire. And here's what's amazing. It was the Sabbath that they gathered the wood for the fire. So they deliberately carried burdens of wood and transgressed their own law out of hatred for Christianity. That's how deep the hatred is that Jews have for the Christians back then. In fact, Jesus in verse 9, we'll see this next time, uh, he identifies them as uh, being from the synagogue of Satan. And so they were Jews physically, Biologically, if you will, but they were serving their father, the devil. Right? And so because of this devotion, this dedication to Rome, and because of the hatred of the Jews, life for faithful Christians in this city was more dangerous than anywhere else in the Roman Empire. You were literally putting your life on the line if you went to Smyrna and declared yourself to be a follower of Jesus Christ. If you're going to do that, you need to be prepared for what was going to happen. Now, many believe that this city still exists today as the modern city of Izmir. It's one of the largest cities in Turkey today. And I also read in a, in a section of some of the research I was looking at that there's a body of people that still love Jesus, that still exists, the church still exists there. And so they continue to remain faithful. It's different than Ephesus, isn't it? Smyrna did not lose their or leave their first love but as a result of their faithfulness as a result of their dedication to Jesus Christ the Smyrna Christians suffered even to death they literally followed the example of Jesus Christ and that's what makes this so profound but what is uh, what is of paramount importance is that we see the relationship between suffering and sanctity. And I believe no one puts it better and more to the point than Peter in his first epistle, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 through 7. Incredible verses, verses that you should memorize, verses that you should take down, because they are important verses. Listen to what Peter says in verse 6 and 7 of 1 Peter 1. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. 
so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this undoubtedly was true of the church at Smyrna. Trials are grievous, Peter tells us. And no one should pretend that they are anything less than painful, distressing. But what I want you to see, what Peter tells us here in chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, is that there's always a divine design in our suffering. That when seen and embraced, it energizes our heart to persevere. If you look at that passage, if, if you're there or you could just jot it down, I want you to notice the very first words in verse 7. So that... Praise God for the so that's in Scripture. So that's. Because in our sufferings, there's always a so that. That's what gives us hope. It emphasizes that there's always a higher spiritual end in view for the sake of which God orchestrates our troubles and our trials. The genuineness of our faith is proven and it increases because of the fire of affliction. It is through the trials, it's through the afflictions, it's through those difficulties, the persecution, that burns away the dross and it purifies our faith. That's what Peter tells us. That's the so that of every trial that we go through. This is why in James chapter 1, verse 2, we are commanded. We're not just giving a suggestion. He commands us to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. Why? Verse 3 and 4 gives us the answer. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and that endurance have its per a perfect result, so that, there we go again, so that you may be what? Perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Isn't that incredible? You go through trials and persecutions so that, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That should be what we strive for, right? And that's how God accomplishes it. It is absolutely stunning when you think about it. It is amazing what sufferings and trials accomplish. We all want to be perfect. We all want to be complete. We all want the lacking in nothing, but we don't like when we, what it takes to get there. But that's what the so that is all about. You never go through those difficult times, you never go through persecution, you never go through those trials, you don't go through those sufferings for nothing. There's always, always, always a so that. So I encourage you, preach to yourself so that every time you go through a difficult time. God has a purpose. And I believe that, <clears throat> excuse me, I believe that when this sinks in our hearts, it gives us the encouragement, it gives us the strength that we need to go through them, and that we come out on the other side of it much more complete. And I believe we're going to be facing a lot more of this in, um, in our world. And I believe it's about time. Because face it, in this country, we've had it quite easy. I know a lot of people look at me and say, are you crazy? But we have. We've had, a, we've had it quite easy. And I think God is going to start purifying his church through things like this. And so we need to be prepared. 
And we have to remember that suffering comes in many forms and in varying degrees, and no doubt the Christians in Smyrna experienced it. But the important point here is that regardless of how suffering manifests itself, it tends to evoke one of two reactions in the soul of the Christian. It can evoke, first, dependency, or it can evoke disillusionment. That's one of the two. Either dependency or disillusionment. I've seen both in people. In fact, at times I've experienced it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul talks of his suffering and brought him to despair. And listen to these words. Here's what he says. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. And talk about that. It's like he suffered so much he felt like he was dying. He was at the end of his life. We had the sentence of death within ourselves so that, love the so that, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Note that rather than disillusionment, he was driven to dependency upon the Lord. He was facing death right in the face. He turned to God. And so the point here is that suffering is used by God to make us dependent on God rather than self. And many times, especially in this country, because of the way we've grown up, it's, we have to pull ourselves up. We have to do it ourselves. What can I do to get myself out of this? Rather than the first thing we do is, oh God, you are my refuge. I need you. And sometimes God will put us in places where we have no choice. I remember when I first went to seminary, big class. Howard Hendricks was teaching it, and he shared some words that to this day I'll never forget. I thought it was crazy, but I'll never forget. You know, I was intimidated because I came from a small Bible college, and I'm, I'm in class with people that came from some of these major schools, universities, that have all, all this background. I'm just this little tiny guy from a little place called uh, Newport Ritchie. <laughs> Who's that? But he made a statement that I'll never forget. He said, you know, there are times where God is going to work in your life to where he puts you on your back on the floor. And in fact, he will smash you right through the floor into the concrete in the basement so you have no place to look but up. Amen. And I never forgot that because I've been on that basement floor many times. Because when you're stubborn, you try to do things on your own. And I needed to face that basement floor quite a few times to break that dependency, that self-dependency. See, suffering is designed by God for that purpose. It's not designed by God to destroy our faith. It's the exact opposite. Suffering is designed by God to intensify our faith, to draw us closer to Him, that we would become more perfect. And that will never happen if we fail to look beyond the pain to the purpose of our loving Heavenly Father. And sometimes that's hard when you're in the midst of that very difficult time. So I want to encourage you, never forget the so that. In every trial, every persecution, every difficulty, all the pain that you go through. His design is to knock out from underneath us every false prop. So that the only one we rely on is Him. God, doesn't, uh, God is not uh, competing with other gods. He's going to knock everything out and say, I'm the only one. And he will bring us to that point, whatever he needs to do. So his aim is to create in us such desperation that we have nowhere else to look but to look up to him and trust in him. That means then under the weight of distress, 
under the weight of pain. We don't need to yield to bitterness because things are not going our way. And that happens, doesn't it? You get bitter. Why me, God? Right. We don't have to doubt because we can't figure out God's ways. This doesn't make sense. What's going on here? We don't have to doubt. And we don't have to get angry because we feel abandoned. Rather, by His grace, we can look at all that we go through and say, so that, so that, in His mysterious and providential mercies, He's working to draw me to Himself. He's working to make me more perfect. He's working to make me more like Jesus Christ. And no, it doesn't get better than that. And so even when we can't see it, we can trust Him anyway, because we know He is in control. So when you go through difficult times, remind yourself of the so that, of that trial. Now sadly, there are times where disillusionment triumphs over despondency. Or dependency, I'm sorry. Many times it leads to crippling bitterness that threatens both our enjoyment in life and our effectiveness in ministry. It affects the way we serve the Lord. And the reason is that, in part, suffering has this disorienting effect. It has this effect on our soul that causes us to begin to question. Why? Because the pain, both physical and emotional pain, contributes to loss of perspective. We begin to lose sight of that. And thus we become disillusioned. disillusioned. We can see little else but the problem and the disruptive impact that it has on our lives. It's all about us and why are we going through this? And we look at others and say, why they do they have it so easy? And why is it so difficult on us? That's disillusionment. We feel lost. We feel directionless. We don't know how to get ourselves from the mess we're in. I have to give you this confession. When I was in seminary again, our first daughter was born. We hadn't planned to have kids until... After seminary, God laughed when we made that plan. <laughs> he laughed. He says, oh, yeah? My first year, my wife got pregnant. And so I automatically said, I got to go. I, you know, I got to get out of school, go find a job, and so on and so forth. But God had other plans. Again, he laughed when I said that. So our daughter was born. She was healthy. And, oh, we were ecstatic. But she had colic. I don't know if you all know what colic is. Colic is a... An alarm clock that goes for us from 9.30 at night till 2 o'clock in the morning. Okay, Pacing the floor, I literally ran a, a, a trail on that carpet in our living room of the apartment. It's not an exaggeration. That child just cried and cried. And I got to the point where I prayed and prayed. And I got to the point, and I confessed, God is gracious, he forgives. I shook my fist at God. And I said, forget you. If you're going to treat me like this after I cry out to you, and you make my life this miserable? I said a few choice words. I said, I'll never pray to you again. Literally, those words came from my lips. God is so patient and so gracious. I praise you for that. Because within a week, I was on my knees. And God answered. He got me through it. And I'll never forget that. Because there have been many times where I've gone through difficult trials. And I go back to that time and say, Frank, what are you going to do? Disillusionment? Or dependency. And I can honestly say disillusionment is not the way to go. It didn't get me anywhere. And God is a gracious God. Praise his name for that. Praise his name. 
But that's what happens at times with that severe pain. There's disillusionment. You begin to question. You begin to doubt. I pray. I cry out. Why doesn't he answer me? You ever been there? I have. And it's frustrating and it's hard. God is a gracious God. He never leaves. And he carries us through it. So that when I came out on the other side and my daughter no longer had colic, oh, I couldn't stop thinking God. But what's really amazing is how many people through the rest of my seminary career would come to talk to my wife and I because they were going through the same thing. And they said, hey, the counselor told us that, or the, the student counselor told us that you guys have been through it. And I would be able to sit down with people and talk to them about what God did. What I did and how foolish it was, but what God did in response. You never go through these things for no reason. And I believe that's what we do, that's what we see in Smyrna. See, many who experience disillusion begin to question. Doesn't God know what is happening? Now think about that question. I've heard people say that. Doesn't God know what is happening? Think about that question. Doesn't God know? Excuse me? Do you know who God is? But that's the disillusionment. That's what happens. Doesn't he care? Doesn't he care? It's like Martha, when Jesus came to the house, remember that? She was cooking and Mary was sitting. She stomped in. Jesus, do you not care? I'm thinking, who are you asking? Jesus, he came as God to die on the cross. And you're going to say, do you not care? See, that's disillusionment. That's what happens with pain. And if, like me, if he cares, why doesn't he do something about it? Does he really love me? Is he playing games with me? I've used the statements and I've heard the statements before. That's disillusionment. And it's hard. Suffering and pain and persecution, it's difficult. It's not easy. And Jesus never promised an easy Christian life. But there's a purpose. There's a so that behind every one of those. And that is to make us more like Christ. So as we work through this letter in Smyrna, we'll see how the Christians uh, here at this time were suffering. But I want us to see how these Christians in Smyrna avoided disillusionment. So we too can avoid the disillusionment. We'll see how Jesus himself proposed that they remain faithful and obey and depend upon God. It's interesting that in the opening words uh, of this letter, Jesus... <clears throat> says that part of the answer is in his description when it says that he is the first and the last who is dead and has come to life. It's the same description that was used back in chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. So I want us to read through this, and then we're going to look at verse 8, and hopefully get through that, and then from then on we'll pick up from there. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last who is dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. And you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. So when we're going through these things, through this persecution, through these difficult trials, these difficulties, in verse 8, I want you to see that Jesus Christ is our example. He's gone through persecution beyond what you and I can ever imagine. Right? 
So he's our example. So you read verse 8. Somebody is going through trials and you read verse 8. The first and the last who is dead and has come to life says this. And you begin to question, how do these words make a difference when a person is at the, uh, in the midst of severe pain and difficulty? In fact, some may even look at these words and say, these words don't help. When I'm in the midst of despair, I don't need these words. I need actual help. Right? But yet I would say that there's no more important words for us to hear than these words of Jesus Christ. And the reason is because the words first and last, great words, first and last, Jesus is affirming his comprehensive control over all of history, over every event that transpires, he is in control. Is there anything before first? No. Is there anything after last? No. He's everything. I'm the first. I am the last. And as I said before, as mentioned in chapter 1, verse 17, and at that point in chapter 1, verse 17, it was connected to God. So when Jesus uses these words of himself, he is declaring that he is God. He is the living God. He identifies himself in that way. In fact, this title was used by the prophet Isaiah for the God of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 41, verse 4, chapter 44, verse 6, chapter 48, verse 12, same words were used of God. And so when Jesus says, I am the first and the last, he is declaring, I am the God who reigns over all. He's the God that Isaiah talked about. And he's the God that chapter 1 was talked about. He is God. So then as God, he is the divine sovereign over history. And he alone possesses the attribute of eternity. So when he says, I am the first and I am the last, we need to see him in that way. He is the divine sovereign over history. That's important. Because if he is the divine sovereign over history, there's no such thing as accidents. That's what you're going through, what you've gone through, or what you will go through. It's not an accident, not a coincidence. Our king is on the throne. He is the first and the last, and he is sovereign over every event. That's what he wants to communicate to those people and what he wants to communicate to you and me. And so in this role of the eternal and infinite one, he gives the word of encouragement to the church who has been exposed to fierce persecution. To the point of death. Now, I want, I want us to see two things here that I hope help us. First, I just said it, and I want you to keep in mind, he is in sovereign control over all of history. That's critical. I think what happens is that we hear it so often that it doesn't move us anymore the way it should. Because in this church, we talk about God's sovereignty. Praise God we do, because I've been in churches where they don't even believe in the sovereignty of God, or they redefine sovereignty, Right? But he is in sovereign control over all of history. Let that sink in. Let it grab hold of your heart so that you are uh, overwhelmed by it. Don't let it just be so familiar that it goes in one ear and out the other. Think about it. Since he is the first, that means he is before all things. So before Genesis 1-1 occurred, Jesus as God existed. He didn't come into existence. He already existed. Nothing comes before first. And so as the first, that means that he is the source of all things. Nothing exists apart from him. Nothing preceded him that might account for your suffering or suggest that it is outside the boundaries of his control. Right? He is sovereign. And since he is the last, then he's the one that's going to be left when everything else is gone. 
He's on the other side of it. All right. Neither time nor things within time can pose any limitation to him as God. As the last, he is the one toward whom all things are moving. He is the goal for which everything exists. And I would say he's also the final explanation of all that occurs. So regardless of what you're going through, he's the explanation. And when you come out the other side, he's there. So he's there before you go in. He's there in the midst. And he's there after. He's sovereign and sovereign control over all of history. And so these are two aspects of eternity that are placed side by side purposely by John to emphasize that Jesus Christ is eternal and he is sovereign. Going through suffering, we can look at all that we are going through and say, Jesus created all things. He is the one for whom all of it was created. He sustains it all. And thus, my condition, what I'm going through, is not beyond the scope of his control. And that should give us strength and courage to go through the worst of times. Because it's not beyond Jesus Christ. And as I said, as the last, he stands on the other side, so that everything works out for good. That's how the promise in Romans 8.28 stands. All things work out together for good. All things, not just a few things, including your persecution, your suffering, your trials, your pain, whatever you go through, the tough times. So whatever you, uh, we are enduring for his sake, please understand that it is not without purpose and it is not without fruit. Jesus Christ, as a sovereign over history, will accomplish his purpose for everything that happens in your life. There are no accidents. Praise God for that. And we will need to focus on that as this world gets worse. So in a time of deep persecution, Smyrna needed encouragement by the one who transcends all the limitations of time and space. And through all of their suffering, they can rest assured that he is at the beginning of it all, and he'll also be at the end of it all, and he'll be in the midst. His rule over all of history provides the basis for comfort for all of those who suffer for his name's sake. Please keep that in mind and please meditate on that. Because I, I, as I said, I am more convinced than ever that we will be facing such persecution. Could very well be in our lifetime at the rate that everything is going. Uh, been trying to keep up on some certain things that are happening. It's kind of scary some of the things that are going on. And I have to keep reminding myself. All of these little insignificant men and women who are trying to push this through are really nothing because King Jesus still reigns. And because he still reigns as a sovereign over all of history, I have no reason to fear. But the flesh will take over. <coughs> and I have to keep preaching to myself. Jesus Christ still reigns. Our president doesn't reign. Schwab doesn't reign. Okay, The who doesn't reign. Jesus Christ still reigns. He's the first and the last. And that's what I have to keep telling myself. And so we need to remind ourselves constantly that Jesus is still preeminent and he is watching over us. And so his rule over all of history provides the basis for comfort for all of those who suffer. Keep that in mind. This is our comfort in the midst of persecution. So we see then, first, that he is in sovereign control over all of history. Second, we see in this verse that he suffered to the point of death. And thus, if he suffered to the point of death, he will carry us through. 
Right? If he suffered to the point of death, we should not be surprised if we suffer to the point of death. Right? These Christians in Smyrna were doing just that. In verse, uh, in verse 10, he, ta- he, he gives the command, do not fear. We're going to talk more about that when we get there. But don't fear about what they're about to suffer. This word of reassurance finds its basis in the fact that Jesus conquered death. That's why he says, don't be afraid. I've been there, and I conquered it. So we don't have to fear death. And uh, I agree with R.C. Sproul one time. He said this instead. That's me. <coughs> R.C. Sproul said, I'm not afraid of death. I'm afraid of the way I die. And I agree. I'm not afraid of death. Death is just a doorway. I tell this to a lot of the patients I visit who know the Lord. I say, all death is is that you open up a door and enter into heaven. Just think of it that way. What I'm afraid of is how I get there. You know, like uh, when you talked about uh, he died in his sleep. That's (laughs) heavenly. That would be perfect. Go to sleep and wake up in the arms of Christ. That would be great. So I don't fear death, but I do fear the way I get there. So Jesus says, don't be afraid. The eternal one became a part of time and history. That's an incredible condescension, something you and I will never understand until we get to heaven. Infinite became finite to take our death so we don't have to. And there in verse 8, when it says that... uh, uh, the first and the last who is dead and has come to life. That verb there, come to life, or came to be alive in the Greek indicates that Jesus is the one who did this. He laid his life down himself, and he took it back up. It's in the middle of voice, for those of you who are interested, meaning that he did it himself. So when he died, it's not that they necessarily killed him, though they did. He laid his life down. He took his life up. He conquered sin. He conquered death so that we do not have to be afraid of death if we follow Christ. If we know Him, if we trust in Him, we have nothing to fear. And so we have a great contrast here. He died, He came to life. Now, of course, for unbelievers, they look at that, they, can't just, they, they just can't accept that. But that's the reality. And so as the eternal God, He became fully human, underwent the agony of death, but we have the great victory of resurrection. Now, many Christians in Smyrna, as you read through this, you'll see, were in the peril of death. Martyrdom was a very real possibility. You see that, especially in verse 10. Um, Be faithful until death. So, yes, you're going to be persecuted, but be faithful until death. He already said, many of you are going to die. Physical death. And so they needed this encouragement and this reassurance that physical death, and we need this, physical death was nothing to fear. And they were being encouraged by the one who faced physical death, conquered it, and is alive on the other side. And he says, I'll do the same thing for you. You don't have to be afraid of death. And the emphasis in the Greek is that he began to live after death. That's the emphasis. And we need to remember that. There's life after death. And so then this is a letter from the Lord who himself was put to death by his enemies and rose again. And he wants them to know that he wants us to see that. And I know, again, the danger here is that we know this, we've heard it, we've heard sermons on it, and it becomes so familiar that it doesn't move us. But anytime we talk about resurrection, anytime we talk about Jesus dying and being raised again, it should stir our hearts to want to shout, wow, he literally conquered 
death. Don't get used to it. Let it move your hearts every time. Familiarity, that's the enemy. Don't ever get used to it. Don't allow yourself to get used to it. When you talk about the resurrection of Christ, how he conquered sin and death, meditate on it and think about it. Let it overwhelm you again and again and again. Let it stir your hearts. That's what he's doing here. I conquered it. I died. I rose again. I'm on the other side. And so, as an eternal living Savior, He will perform His promises. Just as Jesus experienced death and then a resurrection after death, so will those who die in Him. So basically what Jesus Christ is saying to them, and He's saying to us, He's saying, you're worried about martyrdom. I've been there. I'm alive, and I'll do the same for you. Those are His words. That's His promise. No matter what you go through, please understand, Christ went through what you go through to a more intensified degree, even to the point of death. And so he says to you and he says to me, I've been there. I'm alive. And I'm going to do the same for you. I'm going to do the same for you, regardless what you go through. So as he experienced death and rose in triumph over it, we will do the same. Martyrs, will, that's what's going to happen to martyrs, those who die for Christ. That's what happens when we um, uh, go through suffering and pain. So we have to trust in reality that death doesn't mark the end. The reality is, is that death actually marks the beginning. It's like what Billy Graham told his son when he was dying. I'm assuming this is true because I read it uh, um, from his own son. He said, but when he was dying... Billy told his son, he said, when I die, people are going to say, Billy's gone and he passed and he's dead. And he says, don't believe them. (laughs) He said, when I die here, I just start to live. And he's right. He's right. And that's what Jesus wants us to know. And if you have that thought in mind, logically, it's like, okay, yeah. I had a professor one time in Bible college, and I was... I mean, I was a new believer. I didn't know anything. But he made a statement that just shocked me. He said, do you know why God doesn't give us a glimpse of his glory up in heaven? You know why we are not taken up there to look at it? He said, if we saw heaven, we'd all jump out in the middle of the road and want to die. Kill us. Hit us. Because we want to go to heaven. That's how beautiful it is. And I believe that's the reason why I think Jonathan Edwards made the statement. Um, it's one of his... Um, my mind just drew a blank, but his resolutions, thank you. One of his resolutions is that he he makes the resolution that each and every day he will focus on heaven. He wants to meditate on heaven. He wants to meditate on eternity. We need to do that. We need to do that. And in reality, why would we not want to? You want to meditate on this world? I don't think so. And so Jesus is getting us to that point to understand, I've been there. I've done that. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And so the point here is that while Smyrna can take away one's present life, Jesus guarantees one's future eternal life. So this world can take your life, but Jesus Christ has already guaranteed your eternal life. So we have nothing to fear. 
And so for you and me today, no matter how severe the suffering, we don't need to fear either because of martyrdom or because of pain. Why? Because Jesus has endured the greatest persecution, the greatest suffering, the greatest pain, even to death. And he came out alive. And that's true of you and true of me if we are in him. So as Jesus begins to address this church who is experiencing suffering, he addresses them by stating, I am the first and the last. I died, and I'm alive. Meaning, my promise to you is that it will be the same for you. So we don't have to fear the persecution. We don't have to fear the death. Even Paul said, what can this world do to me? What's the worst that the world can do? Take your physical life. But all that means is that they send you to heaven. Okay? And that's the point he wants to get across to them. And we're going to see that, uh, he'll talk about it later, that we'll never taste the second death. That's the death we need to fear. The second death, not the first death. So suffering is an inescapable fact of life for the Christian. But its effects, on the other hand, is up to our response. How do we respond to the suffering and the pain that we go through? And that's what we're dealing with in this letter to Smyrna. Okay, I did all of the talking, so I want to take a moment. Are there any questions or any comments on any of this? I know sometimes I talk very fast and don't give you, give you opportunity. Wow. God did great work in your hearts then. Good. Let's pray. Our gracious God, how we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the first and the last. We thank you for his death and his resurrection. And Lord, we thank you that by your grace in saving us, you have placed us in him so that we have no reason to fear death, the, a physical death. We thank you for the promise. And we thank you that in Christ we have that life. There's nothing to fear. So I pray for these, my brothers and sisters, for myself. Lord, I pray that you would grant to us the heart and the mind to be consumed with these realities that we are in Christ, that we live for him and that persecution and, and suffering and pain is part of this life to make us more like Christ. We thank you for the so that's of every suffering. Help us to endure. Now, fathers, we go to this next hour. I ask that you would prepare our hearts even more to hear from you, that we would sing with hearts filled with joy and hope with you, and that our uh, hearts would receive your word preached, and that you would be glorified in transforming our lives to be more like Christ. Our God, come and do what we can't. Do what only you can do. Transform us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.